You're listening to One Decision, the podcast that looks at the choices made that affect us all. I'm your host, Julia McFarlane. In December, longtime Israeli strongman Benjamin Netanyahu was sworn in for his sixth term in office, not served consecutively. After a spell in opposition, he returned to office and the role that he has occupied for more than 15 years, the longest of any Israeli leader. But some things are now different. He's been indicted on charges of bribery, fraud and breach of trust. And his government is comprised of the most right-wing religious nationalist parties in Israel's history. For months now, Israelis have been out on the streets calling for his downfall. Angry protesters describe him as a tyrant, a dictator, a criminal. What has angered the Israeli populace now more than at any time in recent years is Netanyahu's bid to reform the judiciary. New legislation that would give Parliament and Netanyahu's allies in government more control over which judges get appointed, what the Supreme Court is able to rule on, and even power to override its decisions. It's the biggest shakeup of the judiciary since the founding of Israel in 1948. And now we're seeing something close to mutiny across Israeli society. Trade unions, universities, even government employees were threatening a general strike to paralyse the economy. Reservists in the army said they would not attend to their duties. Ministers in Netanyahu's cabinet even spoke out against his bid to push through the legislation early. As Israel prepares to celebrate the Holy Passover, Netanyahu has been biding his time. He postponed the controversial legislation and has engaged in talks with the opposition. The reforms will return to the Knesset when it is back in session in a few weeks' time. The protesters, meanwhile, have continued to gather in force on the streets. They vow they will not stop until the reforms are withdrawn. They say they are fighting for the future of Israel and for its democracy. Netanyahu has a choice before him to choose what is clearly being expressed as the will of the people of Israel and its allies, or to choose his position in government, the will of his coalition members, not to back down. Someone who's been at his side through many of his decisions is Shalom Lipner. He's been an advisor in the Prime Minister's Office of Israel for more than two decades, advising seven prime ministers on matters related to foreign policy, public diplomacy and Jewish affairs. He sat down with us to discuss this fraught moment in Israel's history and what brought us here. Well, I mean, it certainly does feel like the perfect storm. You know, this isn't the only time that there have been bumps in the road. Um, you know, that uh, it's, a, it's a body politic that is, you know, vibrant, as they like to say. Um you know, and, and not everything has always been smooth. I think, though, you've got protests which would seem to have, you know, expanded beyond the reach of anything we've seen before. Um, you know, you have a, you have a, an international dynamic, you know, that is so wholly polarized. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, we've seen a lot of different elements of this, that, which again, I don't, I think, akin to the legislation itself, which a lot of people have said could pass if it was a little more modest, but mm -hmm. seems. Sort of overkill and coming. I, I've compared it. I've called it everything, everywhere, all at once. Mm. Um, just got all these different things on the table at the same time. It seems to be some sort of legislative feeding frenzy. So I, th I think similarly, you know that that's how we've seen this this whole debate play out. I mean, you've got you know all kinds of different stakeholders um, with with overlapping but not identical objectives. So you have a lot of things in conflict domestically, internationally, um, and that's kind of, it's unique for its intensity. You you mentioned that there are different goals at uh, and, and different sort of forces driving the legislation. 
abroad it's been very much sort of characterized if not explicitly stated as uh, Netanyahu himself trying to neuter the Supreme Court in the context of the corruption charges that he's facing and if you read a bit more into it there are religious parties in in his coalition who who want to limit the power of the Supreme Court for a number of reasons particularly because those people say that that the Supreme Court has got in the way of legislation that they see as favorable to their own minorities. And so do you think the the picture that is being reported overseas is accurate? Uh, is it mostly Netanyahu who is driving this for his own personal political survival, given that he's facing these corruption charges? Or is it also the his religious um, coalition partners who have just as much at stake in these so-called reforms as he does? Yeah, no, unquestionably, I agree with your characterization. I think that it's simplistic to suggest this is just about him. Um, you know, he obviously has what to gain from this personally, shall we say, but his uh, fellow travelers have, have you know, parallel agendas per se. And and in, in fact, I mean, I think from, from the formation of this government, I mean, ultimately, it, you know, it seems to have borne itself out that he's been riding a tiger in that respect because, you know, they're very hungry. Um, for some of the reasons which you stated, you know, I, it extends as well to, I think, to his ultra, his ultra-Orthodox partners as well, which would like some of this legislation to be able to legislate the override in Parliament to not allow the court to step in if, they, if they're able to, to, to pass a draft exemption. So you've got, again, we talked about earlier now, I think you've got a lot of different constituencies that, that see a lot of, you know, that are, that are focused on different outcomes here. If we're talking about his own, you know, the, the prime minister's personal situation, that conceivably he could settle for less, shall we say. He doesn't necessarily need all the components that some of the other partners have put into play to satisfy his objectives, um, if that's all that he's focused on. But the extent that he perceives his uh, you know, his role, whether whether it's just confined to I need to be in that chair because you know I'm hoping that I can leverage the position into some sort of get out of jail free card. Or even if it's you know something more grandiose in terms of you know he's, he's conditioned the public to believe that you know nobody else is up to the task after him having sat in the chair pretty much for the past fifteen years consecutively, you know whether he sees this as being up to the missions that are you know, the challenges that are ahead of us and for that reason he needs to hold on to this position, the price of that survival and that position has been acquiescence to the demands of the partners even on this particular issue. So you know as I said he might be able to settle for less at particular goal. But to the extent that the large that the larger goal requires him to remain in that position, he's had to, you know, sort of pay his due as well to the things that they want. And, and you know, we've seen, I mean, the, the position where until now it was uh it had been reported anyway that the justice minister, for instance, you know, suggested that he would tender his resignation if, if you know the legislation was halted, which would have put the coalition in jeopardy and obviously had a deterrent effect on the prime minister. At the stage we're at now, I think, you know, that. He was clearly able to convince those that were resistant that all you know that I that I'm I'm committed to moving ahead with this. I'm agreeing to a temporary pause. People have you know spoken in favor of dialogue, and I'm I'm offering that right now. Uh, but I haven't derailed that train, so please stay on for the ride. Uh, in the case of his uh, his national security minister in charge of the police, he's uh, you know agreed to to fund, establish and fund uh, sort of a private security force um, under this his. This is Ben Gavir. Correct. Mm. Um, you know, so so you know, th- those seem to be the the immediate prices paid at this stage of the game to keep everybody on board. With ultimately all bets being off at this point for you know where we'll be a month from now. The parties are are in dialogue right now. Um, people are very skeptical 
of the chances for for success in that conversation. There's there's virtually no trust between the parties there. There was a lot of heated rhetoric between Washington and uh, Jerusalem, the prime minister's office last week. Biden said that he hoped Netanyahu would walk away from this legislation. He went as far as saying, I'm very concerned they cannot continue down this road. I mean, that's quite unprecedented criticism from the US, really. They try not to get involved in Israeli domestic affairs, and they certainly don't like telling the Israelis what to do. And then and then Netanyahu issued his own statement uh, in response to that in the middle of the night, uh, after midnight Israeli time, I believe, saying he rejected foreign pressure, saying Israel is a sovereign country which makes its decisions by the will of its people and not based on pressures from from abroad, including from the best of friends, adding that he's known Biden for over 40 years and, and appreciates his longstanding commitment to Israel. What is at stake here? Is the US-Israeli partnership uh, potentially in jeopardy if, if this legislation goes ahead? Uh, how worried are you about not only how this whole crisis is playing out, but also how it's playing out in, in Washington? I preface by saying when we talked about, you know, the unprecedented nature, I think what, you know, what's what's maybe sort of upgraded this moment, I guess, is, you know, that this criticism this criticism is public. In other words, you know, there, there have always been an exchange of views. I think for the most part, they've been things like this have stayed behind closed doors and maybe we're somewhere else or somewhere different today. I don't think it's just been rhetorical over the years that people have said the relationship is stronger than any two leaders. Uh, we see the cooperation continuing. It's clearly strengthened by the fact that leaders are in sync, but it really is grounded in these shared values and shared interests, um, some of which are changing, um, you know, at least morphing. And I think, you know, that's the larger issue. This is, you know, what we see now is maybe symptomatic of that. I mean, you know, President Biden and, and Prime Minister Netanyahu do know each other for many years. President Biden is a longstanding friend of Israel. He talks about, you know, how he himself is a Zionist. I mean, he's been very clear about that. Um, but, you know, we all saw the Gallup poll last week, which talked about, you know, record lows of, of Democratic capital D support for Israel. There are all kinds of reasons we talk about an occasion for that. And, pe- you know, people are concerned about that. So, I mean, it's, it's more a question of trend lines. You know, this is not a good moment. This will not be sending good signals. Both American society and Israeli society are becoming increasingly polarized. So it's it's a. Uh, it's a tense moment. I think, you know, I don't think I don't think just as I don't think the problems necessarily started overnight. I don't think we're going to be in a terrible reality tomorrow. And as far as the prime minister's statement, there's there's always you know, a tendency in those camps to like sort of blow back and say, well, you know, Israel is a sovereign, independent state. It can do whatever it wants. And, and, my, and my argument is, you know, this that's true. At the end of the day, that is true. But actions have consequences. So, you know, my response to the prime minister, to the extent that, you know, he wants it now would be that, you know, you know, that's true. You're fully within your rights. But I mean, you cannot guarantee that, uh, you know, that uh, the United States will be on board with all those changes. And and we've seen, you know, the effect that this has had a uh, corrosive effect, I could argue, I would argue on the relationship between Israel and the, United, the American Jewish community. People who historically the state of Israel has relied upon for, you know, sort of support and to, to speak on behalf of the, of the bilateral relationship. You worked in the prime minister's office for, I hope you don't mind me saying, a great many years, uh, 26 wow. years, I believe. You have worked under Netanyahu. You know him personally. This is his sixth term in office, I believe, uh, that he was sworn in last December. What do you make of Netanyahu 6.0? Is he behaving authoritarian? It's hard to I mean, I would argue not in this sense. People say, is he really in charge? 
right? Mm. It's an interesting question. I mean, he's in charge. On the other hand, remaining in charge requires these accommodations he's made with others. If those things were not to happen, he would no longer be able to remain in charge because they would bolt, Mm. right? So part of this tug of war, you know, what is, what, what do I have to be able, how much, you know, how much ground do I have to cede in order to stay in charge of that respect? So, I mean, it's, it's, it's not some sort of, uh, I don't think we can look at this as some sort of, uh, you know, personal on an individual, in, in, on an individual level, because obviously, you know, whether it's he has to be responsive to the needs of his, of his coalition partners to keep them on board. And again, in the pause that we're in right now, we also see he, ultimately he had to be responsible to the pressures coming from the street and the international community, without which I don't think we'd have the pause we have now. So limited authoritarianism at best. You briefly mentioned the ultra-Orthodox and something very interesting that has stayed with me for a long time. I don't know if you ever came across Paul Danahar uh, when you were in, in, in government, who was the former BBC Jerusalem bureau chief. He wrote a book on the Middle East a few years ago, and it was at one of these talks that he was doing promoting that book where he mentioned something very interesting about Israeli society and uh, uh, largely liberal, why is it they never come out in support for Palestinian rights? And he said that one of the big sort of misunderstandings overseas is that in Israeli society, a lot of Israelis despise the ultra-Orthodox way more than they despise the Palestinians. For them, that is the real issue, the issue with the ultra-Orthodox, because they see them as having a much easier time. They're exempt from serving in the military. They get all kinds of benefits. And there's a lot of resentment felt by taxpaying uh, Israeli citizens. What do you make of of that assessment? And and do you think this is playing into, into the protests that are coming out in force? It's been fascinating to watch this unfold. Scary, but I'm fa- you know, but fascinating. I don't think there's any question that this this current situation has unleashed a lot of genies, or maybe dormant for a while. A lot of this goes back 75 years to the creation of the state. I mean, I, I wrote recently that the uh, you know essentially a lot of accommodations were made at the beginning to make sure that that you know statehood could take root, and a lot of disputes were sort of brushed under the rug, and you know we'll deal with them at later points. And now that many of the you know sort of hold the you know the bars to to public conflict shall we call it have been you know been broken a lot of things are coming out um that is certainly one of them that is you know the axes along which this uh this battle seems to is being fought now uh i don't think it's coincidental that that the ultra orthodox politicians have tried to be constructive and lower their head have tried to say you know this isn't our fight but yeah, but that's certainly another fault line um, that is evident in these protests. I mean, mm. you know, we've seen haves and have-nots, religious and secular, liberal and conservative. I think a lot of these, you know, sort of uh, fissures are coming into play in these conversations. This is very much an inside-the-family fight, as you indicate. I, mm. You've seen some blowback, or there's always this, a subtext conversation of when, where the Arab citizens of Israel in these protests also, are they in favor of this government? Why aren't they in the streets? Mm. You know, and they too don't want this to become necessarily about them. And in fact, this con- you know, the conversation is not, as you say, along these lines, is not entirely about them as well. Like, I mean, it, it would sort of divert the focus. And none of these people want to say, like, you know, we want to become the center of attention right now. Mm. So, so in a sense, right, some things have become peripheral to this argument. And the others have just become like a very rowdy family dinner. Um, and and you know, the food is flying in all directions, and that is certainly <laughs> one of the things on the table. And uh, and it's That's been Israeli it's, politics. Isn't it just?
Shalom Lipner speaking to us earlier this week. And now time for me to bring in my co-host, Sir Richard Dearlove, the former chief of MI6, for his thoughts on Israel's current crisis. Shalom Lipner has obviously spent a very long time, three quarters of my life, advising Israeli prime ministers. And while it might seem like Netanyahu could possibly do with a lot of advice right now, it does seem like he might be stuck between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you that he's in a difficult position. And of course, his reputation is as a political magician who waves his magic wand and maneuvers himself out. And uh, he has a you know, specific reputation for being able to do that. But I, I, I think I would go back to something more basic and say that he's the prisoner of proportional representation. I mean, what's happened in Israel, in particular with this government, is he's dependent on a majority which includes some very extremist views. And I think this is one of the liabilities with proportional representation, is that you have these really uh, hardline uh, extreme parties that don't really represent popular views. They're highly sectional. They get brought into a coalition and then they force the coalition to look in the direction of very hardline policies which do not have popular support or popular backing. So I, I think Netanyahu in this instance is in a really, really difficult position because, I mean, he if he backs out, he risks losing his majority and there being yet another election in Israel. I mean, I'm not an expert on Israeli politics, but uh, I mean, I've been to Israel a number of times and and, and certainly sort of mixed with uh, Israeli politicians. And I mean, it is the most extraordinarily rumbustious democracy. I mean, the the, the intensity of political debate, whether you're sitting around a dining room table or whether you're actually you know, in a clear political environment. I suppose a dining room table in a way is a political environment, but the, the, the debate is just so volatile and so, so hard and, and, and so confrontational. But, you know, usually the Israelis find a way through. I think this time... Netanyahu is in a really tough position. Its identity as a democratic state, it is, of course, a claim that comes with some caveats because democracy is not available to everybody who lives in Israel or under Israeli authority. Yet it seems like this legislation that Netanyahu is wanting to push through and his colleagues in government who who have just as much of a vested interest in pushing this through as he does, they don't seem to be particularly worried about Israel losing its credibility when it comes to claiming it is the only democracy in the Middle East. I mean, we've been debating Israel's democracy since the intifadas 
since the creation of the state of Israel, really. But what we have now is an argument that's got nothing to do with the Palestinians, nothing to do with with the occupation. This is Israeli citizens who are coming out in unprecedented number, calling against their government, calling Netanyahu a dictator. We are seeing Israeli leaders in defense, in the military, in the security services, in intelligence, the reserves who have a very special place, a very respected place and and a role in Israeli politics, saying that they will refuse to go to their posts because as far as they are concerned, Netanyahu is leading the government down the path of dictatorship. And it is extraordinary to see those sorts of words and criticisms and claims coming from people like the former head of the Shin Bet, the defense minister, the justice minister. We're seeing discord in the Israeli government that we haven't really seen before. And particularly that criticism from the White House, the Israelis' cherished partnership with the United States. And yet Netanyahu, he did not take very well to President Biden warning Israel about the path that it was potentially going to go down. And he used words of of foreign interference, which I thought was very interesting because in an interview he did in London uh, recently, at a time when there were thousands and thousands of Israelis on the streets, he wasn't in Israel, he was in London uh, having meetings. And he did an interview with Piers Morgan. And when Morgan challenged him, on the protests, he blamed the West. He said that a lot of the protesters were ignorant of a lot of what the bill contained and and the legislation and that they didn't really understand what it was that they were protesting against. And he blamed the West. He said that there was foreign interference in those protests and that this was something that was instigated from abroad. I mean, that is a line that you tend to hear from people like Alexander Lukashenko, from Putin, from dictators abroad, and not something that we're really used to hearing and, and, and seeing from a prime minister of Israel. Well, I'm not so sure about that, because you know Netanyahu in the past has shown the ability to be pretty rude about any of uh, Israel's allies if they've sort of crossed him politically. And I mean, I do remember him being incredibly rude uh, about some incident to do with the UK at some point in time in the past. And, you know, he he really does let rip. And that's part of his sort of charisma oh, as sure, a politician. But to the White House. But it is... It, yeah, a... no, I think this... Well, ultimately, I think this is why the track he's on at the moment is going to prove politically problematic for him, and he may well have to compromise. And, uh, I mean, also, you know, Netanyahu said he's going to... He hasn't actually abandoned the legislation. He's backed off. And, I mean, basically, uh, my understanding is the core of this piece of legislation is 
rather than judiciary appointing the judiciary, it actually boils down to, you know, parliament, i.e. presumably the government appointing the judiciary, so that the, 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 the independence of the judiciary is lost. Yeah, yeah. The, the override clause, which would give the Israeli parliament power to pass laws which have been previously ruled invalid by the Supreme Court, is obviously a very big part of it. There is also uh, a part of the bill that would change the makeup of the committee that selects Supreme Court judges, which would help in politicizing the Supreme Court. And then there's that other part of the bill, which, if passed, would make it difficult for a sitting Prime Minister of Israel to be declared unfit for public office. It's basically the 25th Amendment version in Israel's constitution, which interestingly is unwritten, uh, apparently, just like the British. It's really a philosophical point, which is actually debated here sometimes in the UK, not very often, but it, it which is the issue of parliamentary sovereignty. <laughs> Are the judges, um, you know, subject ultimately to parliamentary sovereignty or not? Um, so, and I'm not going to argue it either way. I'm just pointing out that there is, you know, there is an anomaly here. Um, you know, ca can Parliament um, ultimately, in terms of passing legislation, is that is that the final court of decision, or is there a separate judicial power that overrules parliamentary sovereignty? Uh, I'm, and I'm just well, pointing like, you're totally this out right for the to benefit point... of listeners listening to us. Um, discussing this because I think that's a very interesting philosophical issue, and people like Jonathan Sumption, you know, who who are you know the most sort of distinguished legal thinkers in the UK, have much debated and written and spoken about this issue. And I mean, some people in the UK would say, in in some areas now, you know, um, lawyers have become unaccountable. I mean, can Parliament challenge the decisions? Of, of a high court. And uh, I mean, actually, it, it, it has application for the UK in terms of the European Court of Justice. So the ECJ makes decisions which are totally unchallengeable by, well, well the situation has changed post-Brexit, but would have been totally unchallengeable by, by the British people voting. I think that's a really, really... Uh cogent point and to sort of compare and contrast with many recent examples of this very same debate happening in the UK and all of the stuff about Brexit and the Supreme Court. The point of the judiciary is to apply the law and the dangers of politicising the judiciary and having political appointees is where you then run into trouble. And there are all sorts of checks and balances in our democratic system. Parliament is one of them. The judiciary is another. The House of Lords also, which which sometimes works not quite in tandem, but, but at opposite ends of the House of Commons. But I think the fact that you have a sort of, the balance of power is shared among different parts. 
I mean, separation of powers is fundamental, and of course it's most clearly expressed in the American Constitution. I mean, in our Constitution, it's, you know, it's unwritten. We have a, you know, we have a Constitution created by precedent, really. And of course, you know, the independence of the judiciary is a really, really fundamental issue. But I, I guess what I'm saying is there are points where if Parliament makes law, does that overrule the judiciary or not? Um, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not a legal philosopher, and 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 I, yeah. he was pointing out. I think in the case of this legislation, I mean, obviously, it's a chicken and egg situation, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But there's a violation here of what you know. Obviously, a large chunk of Israeli voters, and as I said, it's a very rambunctious democracy. I have a question for you, Richard. You mention, you know, principles and, and, and values. Is there a reason why such a close defense and security ally as Israel, less to the UK, more towards the United States, is there a reason why there is not the same kind of security relationship or intelligence sharing relationship that it has with the United States than it does with, for example, the Five Eyes Network? Is it because this idea of Israel being a truly democratic state is actually one that Western allies are not entirely bought into? Why, why isn't Israel a hugely powerful security and intelligence leader in the world? Why isn't Israel in Five Eyes like the Australians and the, and the Canadians? Well, it's a good question. Um, and I think, you know, it reflects maybe the history of the creation of the State of Israel and, you know, its complex and difficult relations with the Arab countries surrounding it, with which the UK in particular, you know, has had close historical relationships so, I mean, I think that the reason that the United States has had that fundamental relationship with Israel for a long time, I think, is the consequence of the strength of the Jewish lobby in the, their presence in, in American politics. And, of course, that's not replicated at all in the UK. So the UK has, as it were, taken a more balanced uh, stance in the Middle East and of course, you know, we were obviously responsible for the Palestinian mandate at the time of the creation of Israel. And therefore, let's say our relationships got off to a pretty rocky and complex historical start. I wouldn't say from which they've never recovered. And so th th this has a long and complicated uh, past, but one which, you know, if you study it, is very interesting. I, I, I mean, look, in my career, we had good relations with Israel. I don't want to go into detail, but that relationship was quite complex. Oh, go on. <laughs> no, I can't. Please, please do go into detail. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, I've had dealings with with, with the Israelis in in an intelligence capacity, and uh, you know, very interesting they are too. But you know, we are also closely related in terms of our alliances with some of the countries that surround Israel too. 
So it's a complicated, it's a very complicated relationship. Very similar alliances, many areas of strategic cooperation and aligned priorities. How was it working with Israeli intelligence and how, how much could you feel you could trust them and and share with them? Because the Israeli security services and their intelligence, they, they do go rogue from time to time. They do things like take out Iranian nuclear scientists and, and, and things like that, the sort of thing that the Brits and the Americans don't tend to do, or do they? Well, I, yet again, I'm, I'm, I may be constrained in it. Look, let me put it like this. The Israeli military and Israeli intelligence and security is devoted to one objective and that one objective is the survival of the state of israel to the security of the state of israel they are ruthless in their interpretation of that mission uh, for which i applaud them that's why they're there i'm not criticizing them for that but it does mean that they view all relationships in, in in the context of that perspective. So let's put it like that. And dealing with Israelis is therefore quite complicated sometimes, however friendly and close to them that you are. And the other thing that I said at the beginning, you know, you have to, in some respects, divide internal politics and the the, the extraordinary way that they're conducted in Israel from Israel's security situation. I mean, what's extraordinary about it is the fertility of um, the industries, particularly those that are connected in some way with the defense, things like cybersecurity and all the other things that they develop. I, I, I mean, Israel is an ex it, it It's like a sort of, almost like a reactor producing, you know, continuous flashes of, of extraordinary power. I mean, they are really, it's a remarkable country. And I, I, I think that it's not going to fall apart because of what Netanyahu is doing. It will find a way through these problems. Uh, and that may be very, very awkward and difficult politically, but it will definitely come out the other side. That's it for this week's episode of One Decision. We drop new episodes every Thursday. Like and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Drop us a line. Tell us your thoughts. What decisions have impacted you and where you live? You can write to us. Our email is onedecision at onedecisionpodcast.com. From me and the team, thank you for listening and see you next time. <laughs>